Hello and welcome to the test screening. I'm Billy. I'm Chloe. We're two film school graduates and cinephiles who can't seem to get enough of the big screen. So now we're bringing you our weekly insights into the biggest releases, hottest topics and forgotten classics every Monday. Hello and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And I'm Billy. What has happened this week in film, Billy? What are the juicy news stories? Give me the gods. <laughs> Well, the juiciest news story in my mind from this week in film news is that in conjunction with Disney laying off 3% of their employee load, 7,000 employees to be exact, despite the fact that they had you know, an 8% increase in revenue, so it looks like they're trying to cut costs here, despite you know not desperately needing to, they've also announced Toy Story 5, Frozen 3 and Zootropolis 2. So it seems very much like they're looking to, you know, their three biggest recent financial juggernauts in their catalogue. You know, the past three entries in these franchises have both, have all three, all three of them have passed a billion dollars at the box office. You know, in conjunction with them cutting costs, it looks like they're trying to, you know, milk the most financial gain they can out of this. Toy um, Story, this... why though? It ended I know. so well. <laughs> And then it ended so well again, but not quite as well as it ended the first time. And I feel like we're just going to keep going with it until we get the shit ending that we all know it's heading towards. You know yes, what I mean? Like, I... I don't even know if it can reach up to the standard. I mean, I can't even remember. Like, I enjoyed the fourth one, but apart from the spork, there's not much that I remember about it. It doesn't stand out in my brain anywhere near as much as the first three. No, I, I would agree. I don't think it has nearly as many unique standout memorable qualities as the original trilogy and it very much even though I liked the way it ended and I kind of liked the way it wrapped up Woody's arc within the group and also his relationship with Bo and Buzz it did feel very much like an appendix like an epilogue to that original trilogy it didn't necessarily feel like it fully connected that with that original trio I think in the way they maybe intended it to and I really don't see story-wise where they can go with it from here and like you say, you know, Pixar have been and Disney have been very, very consistent. Keeping on with the same franchise over and over, you're only going to be able to hit gold so many times with that. And also with them pulling these kind of franchises out of the woodwork, it kind of seems like a bit of a regression to me because, you know, one of their most recent entries, Turning Red, I just loved. I thought it's use of the red pandas adorable as they are um was such a original and you know visually inventive and fun way of examining you know young females going through puberty and there were some really deep emotive complex thematic ideas it's just fun as well it was different i mean pixar has always been core of creativity you know we kind of see them as having all these original ideas um being innovators and coming up with things that you wish that you'd thought of but also just really tight storytelling and i i, I kind of agree i think it's a bit of a regression to kind of go back to these properties that they maybe didn't need to go back to i mean um frozen and zootropolis i i can forgive a bit more 
been frozen, that's not that much of a surprise to me, to be honest. I, I, I was pretty sure that we were going to get a Frozen 3 at some point. And I, I kind of enjoyed the, the last one. I thought it was a bit messy, but I went to the cinema to see it on my own, surrounded by children, and I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and Zootropolis, I really loved. Um, I don't know if they'd be able to, if a sequel would have the same kind of effect as the first one. Um, you know, I, I'd hope that they'd kind of expand it and evolve the idea and improve on it and expand the characters. Um, but whether or not they'll they'll do that, it, it all just seems like a bit of a cash grab, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, you just go back to Turning Red, you know, that the, the Chinese representation, the cultural representation in that and the the coming of age ideas it's exploring, you know, it seems very, very progressive. And also, you know, you go back to recent entries like Inside Out and the way that in a really coherent, easy for a young audience to understand way it unpacked, you know, our emotional development as children and also the way soul looked at, you know, so completely and thoroughly and entertainingly distilled ideas of mortality and kind of seizing the day and, you know, living for the moment. It, it does feel like a move away from these kind of very progressive thematically ambitious ideas that I think Disney has been trying to put out recently and really thoroughly achieving and being successful with on a narrative basis. Do you think that this is a bit of a the Disney Plus effect? Um, because obviously we're getting we're seeing less people going to cinemas for a start, um, especially for Disney content, because we know that it's going to come on streaming very quickly. I wonder if I wonder what they're going to do with these releases, whether it's going to be that they're actually going to put them out in the cinemas for longer without moving them to Disney Plus, try and boost their income. I don't know, it feels like a strange way to make money when the main thing that they have at the moment is based on a subscription service, whereas I guess the big money would come from prolonged cinema time. Yeah, so... Something that happened recently, actually, and this might again have contributed to the decision to lay off employees, was I think there was a two, a two million decrease in subscribers. They lost a, a somewhat sizable chunk of subscribers. So maybe the thinking is that in bringing out these tried and tested uh, IPs and potentially giving them big cinematic uh, releases and widespread distribution, that they will pull back. A, another section of the audience whereas you know another part of their you know customer basis seems to have dwindled so maybe i can see the thinking of it of it there but um considering you know how much streaming is taking over i do want and also the fact that people may be getting fatigue from these franchises you know being beaten to death mm. that uh, i will be interested to see if they if it does have the success and, and reach the, the number of people that Disney is perhaps hoping for it to. It sounds good in theory having Disney on its own streaming service because they've got the content to be able to do it, especially because they've bought out so many other co uh, companies. I guess the the test will be in if it can survive amongst these platforms in its own right in the long run when they're also creating this new content themselves which is in a way much more palatable i think to the to the streaming audience i still think that disney 
In terms of what it creates for streaming, it's quite low quality compared to what it creates for the cinema. I think there's a really big disparity. Whereas with Netflix, I feel like the shows that they create for streaming are are up there. Like there's a bit more there's a bit more differentiation between them. They have like a little bit more of a different look. They've got different genres. They've got more to pull you in. Whereas I still think that the Disney um, series they're kind of samey to me they, they, there's not enough to like make me want to pay for a subscription no and i think that at the moment they're very much skewed aren't they towards the mcu towards star wars towards the disney ips whereas you know netflix are they're kind of doing it right really they're they're bringing in you know great directors i mean you know you had i mean it's a film but you had them going to martin scorsese and the safety brothers for uncut gems and the irishman and you know with things like Stranger Things and Dark, they're kind of dominating in the sci-fi field. With co- they're really doing well in comedy with Sex Education, which incidentally has wrapped season four. Woo! Big, so excited! Uh, I can't <laughs> wait. We, we're gonna, we're big, doing a Sex Education episode. Yes, point, ab- really. absolutely, hundred percent. That's on the cards. But yeah, like you say, you know, with their covering a lot of genre bases and bringing in you know a lot of very diverse talent, you know, they're they're reaching. A much wider audience netflix and i think you know the content stream for disney at the moment i think is just too insular and too pigeonholed towards a, lim- a limited section of the audience let's leave disney behind us and go on to our first review and um we've got quite again a good mix of films uh today billy good job on uh, on your selection mm-hmm. um let's get as far away from disney as humanly possible <laughs> and we're going to talk about women talking and this is a oscar contender isn't it yes so double academy award nominee in best adapted screenplay and best picture of the year directed by sarah polly who made a really terrific documentary called stories we tell which i would recommend to any documentary fans kind of looking at the way Storytelling, even in a documentary context, can take on a degree of artifice and unpacking, you know, what's real and what's constructed in a documentary context. Very good, very impressive piece of work. Women Talking is her next feature. It's based on a novel from 2018, which was incidentally based on a a 2009 real life case in an insular Mennonite community in Bolivia which um, suffered a mass rape case in, wh- in which a lot of women were drugged with um, a livestock tranquilizer and assaulted during the night. And, you know, when they woke up bruised and bloodied they- and went to the men and were like, what's going on? They were accused, well, they were accused of just being hysterical, you know, having flights of hysteria-induced imagination or that they had simply been targeted by Satan and demons. And that is the inciting incident for uh, the film Women Talking here. And what essentially pro- progresses to happen from there is that the men are eventually arrested after some of the women kick off in the community. And then they are taken away and by the authorities. But a, pretty much every adult male member of the community follows on to post bail for the attackers. And the women are left with a 24 to 48 hour window whereby they must decide how they are going to respond to this horrific situation. And they end up coming to three main points. Stay and do nothing, stay and fight for change, or leave. 
there is a hayloft in the top of a barn on the community. And they essentially that becomes a makeshift courtroom where they then discuss the theological and logistical implications of the circumstances they find themselves in. Now, a significant choice in women talking is to keep the assaults entirely off screen, only choosing to show the women realising the severity of their injuries and their distress in the aftermath during the morning after. Sarah Polly has stated that she wanted to do this because enough violence against women had been displayed in cinema already and more than enough, perhaps even too much, screen time had been dedicated to showing villainous villainous men and villainous presences and how those villainous processes are then fostered uh, early on in life and how those then develop into really venomous personalities. Why not spend more time understanding the survivors of their actions and their own experiences and the complexities of the situations they find themselves in? And in never showing the assaults in women talking, she was she said she was deciding to rewrite that narrative and alter the course of it around cinematic representation of female mistreatment, which I think is an incredibly admirable thing to do. And what it also says to me is that Sarah Polly in the film understand the idea that for me, all the best films on this subject do. Films like Mysterious Skin, Promising Young Woman, The White Ribbon, and I May Destroy You, which for me is the key set text on this and just a, a televisual masterpiece. This idea is that uh, works where the abuse is either limited in visual detail or takes up little screen time. And it understands the idea that the true narrative weight and important empowering thematic ideas and stories about abuse are not embedded in the physical brutality of the act, but in everything that happens around that act and how it is then responding to, responded to by the people who it affects. And it was really invigorating to see the this viciousness relegated to the abstract and the voices of the women brought to the forefront. One might think that based on a cursory description of the subject matter and the the makeshift courtroom of the hayloft, that women talking would appear inherently theatrical and be constricted by this limited setting and be, you know, very polemical and heavy on dialogue and quite dry and, and maybe somewhat dull. And this really actually isn't the case. In, in great judgments of how to adapt the novel for the screen, Sarah Polly has made some welcome expansions outside of the hayloft where the women have their debate. It not only broadens the seismic impact of the story and with her really deft directorial hand, she makes what could have been a really excessively stagey uh, work into something that is in my opinion, immensely cinematic and engaging as a piece of filmmaking. The geography and performative flow of the hayloft is really fluid. It doesn't have the rigid and schematic stage-like structure of like the apartment in The Whale, which we reviewed recently and, and said was staged to the point where it stifled the drama. The camera shifts in placement confidently, you know, shifting in depths of field, distance from the actors and the height of the angles to emphasise those shifts in power dynamic and the emotional fluctuations and deep subtextual implications of the women's points. And this makes the exchanges so much more details than just, you know, theoretical speechifying. It has powerful visual representat representations of the points and events the women detail, you know, when learning to vote. Due to the fact they cannot read or write, they draw three pictures representing the three options and draw crosses underneath. Uh, when they talk about the crushing silence and grief that they're left in after having been assaulted, 
you get these incredibly stark, powerful images of, of empty barns, empty schoolrooms, empty houses, showing how, you know, empty and how, the, how they've had the life sucked out of them. And the film's kind of grey and bleakly desaturated colour palette only adds to that effect. Hilda Gutendorf's score, which I think was criminally snubbed at the Oscars, I think a lot of people feel that way, it's used sparsely, but it's incredibly powerful when it appears. You get these metallic warped clangs that invoke impending danger, whilst these tension-laden kind of weeping strings and plucked melodies give a soulful presentation to the character's struggles, but also perfectly illustrate how desperately upsetting the whole situation is and added to how moving the piece was for me. At the centre of it all, you have the stars of the piece, which really are the cast and the writing. The performances across the board from the ensemble are just outstanding. It's easy to single out, you know, Claire Foy's unbridled rage and fierce protectiveness of her children as a as a standout, or the bitter defensiveness propped upon weary anguish from Jesse Buckley. But really, Mara's delicate optimism and effortlessly bright and shimmering empathy. Judith Ivey and Sheila McCarthy's authoritative yet compassionate prescience, and even Ben Whishaw's earnest desire to affect positive future change are the perfect counterpoints to each other. There's so many great foils, and yet it doesn't feel, you know, like a piece of, you know, constructed, thought-out writing. It all feels completely natural and genuine and authentic and in the moment. And the natural friction allows the performers to build off one another, heightening their emotions and and deepening the complexities of the issues they discuss. The ebbs and flows in the debate are are executed with total mastery by the actors. It really is, in my mind, one of the strongest ensemble casts I've seen in a very long time. The dialogue's also fantastic. It's very dense and the observations are very sharp about the various layers to the conundrum they find themselves in, detailing the various implications and impacts any choice they will make will have. But the dialogue always retains an incredibly potent humanistic quality. They're discussing at length lots of very introspective, lots of very philosophical and theological issues. And, you know, when these are discussed in chamber piece dramas like this, oftentimes the characters may wax lyrical on a philosophical argument to such an extent that it feels like feels like a regurgitation of a writer's thoughts and not a real person speaking. But the characters' verbal dissections of their desire to protect themselves and their children, their religion, their desire to seek forgiveness from God and maintain their chances of reaching heaven, but also find healing in better lives. They're so authentic. I keep coming back to this word authenticity, but it does just feel there's such truth in the writing and in the performances. And that balance between theological, the philosophical, and the personal is really well balanced. None, I think, receives you know too much weighting, and that just, in the end, makes it incredibly socially relevant and socially pertinent to some of the issues that you know women are facing right now in our current you know social climate. But also just incredibly moving and super super impactful. This is, I think. I haven't been able to stop really thinking about it since I saw it and it really did just capture my heart and it feels very, very urgent and important for right now. And like I said, it's just from a filmmaking perspective, you know, expertly crafted. This is, I think, easily one of the best films I've seen of the last year. I would 
solidly put it in my top 10 and I would, I would grade it an A plus. I would give it my highest rating. Wow. Yeah. So um, an A plus film. Do you, do you think it'll take home the Oscars? I think perhaps it hasn't had enough fanfare to achieve best picture. Uh, I, th I think it, it is, some people might write it off as being too dull or too stagey those who don't really, really buy into the filmmaking mastery of it and also the performances. I also think there's more kind of conventional Oscar bait in there that is more kind of heartwarming. This, you know, Women Talking is also very bleak and very emotionally draining. So I think there are more palatable works that could potentially take on the Oscars. I would love to see it get adapted screenplay though, because the writing is that strong. Moving on then to, um, I'm going to make a, a stab in the dark and say that this film isn't as well written. Um, Knock at the Cabin. Seeing as you said, um, you know, not as well written, I knew exactly that you were going to say <laughs> Knock at the Cabin. So, Shyamalan. Is this, is this, this is Shyamalan, isn't it? Yes, this is M. Night Shyamalan, and I will definitely get onto the, <laughs> the writing point. Shyamalan Madingo. Um, yes. This is his uh, his his new you know supernaturally tinged you know home invasion esque thriller, and whilst I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's without its flaws, I do think the general consensus of this being a return to form is actually warranted and kind of like harks back to when he was being touted as you know making these novel fusions of Twilight Zone esque stories with this Hitchcockian level of suspense. Uh, the story is that. A couple with their daughter while they're on vacation in a remote cabin in the woods, always a recipe for disaster, are accosted and have their home invaded by a group of people who say they are religious uh, zealots and want to and urge them to say that they must sacrifice one of them in order to basically prevent the apocalypse. And they, of course, resist, and then a power struggle happens. And you know, there's this very, very consistently maintained ambiguity as to whether or not these people are crazy and they've just, you know, they are suffering from severe you know, psychological breaks or whether that what they are saying is actually, you know, in, is actually on the horizon and impending doom is coming. So for starters, something I was pleasantly surprised about is that the film has a really terrific sense of place, the breeze and cicada song and the rustling of the woods, you know, all being at the forefront of the sound mix and very resonant, really helps to ground this story in a in a real and believable place, which then adds an extra sense of believability to the potentially fantastical situation as it feels strongly rooted in a um, believable location. And, I mean, most of this film is set in a cabin. <laughs> it appears, you know, the past two weeks have been the the episodes of the limited settings but in comparison with something like the whale it's a it's impressive how much visual mileage m night Shyamalan is able to pull out of this space you know he's actually able to create quite a relative you know quite a simmering pressure cooker environment in here despite the fact that the trailer painted this scenario is like ludicrously ghoulish how could you ever generate tension out of this it's ridiculous but his camera work with the freak is frequently creative with Really good use of negative space in the framing, blocking up the characters where they obscure each other and visually represent shifting power dynamics, off-kilter Dutch angles, unsettling pans and push-ins, temporarily 
the temporary camera shifts upside down and top down shots from the ceiling. He puts the camera in about every conceivable area and angle you can in this space without bombarding you with so many disquieting angles that you become numb to their disorienting effect. It's kind of smart from a structural perspective as well by introducing the Dave Batista character who's one of the zealots early on in this scene where he's kind of having this increasingly sinister conversation with the daughter outside the cabin. You kind of see this conflict within him and also in the other invaders where they feel as, you know, that they they feel such importance and such reverence for this task and the desperation of the situation that there is this conflict in what they are in who they are as people and what they're asking the couple to do versus what they what they believe is absolute necessity for the good of the human race. Now that being said, <laughs> and also how committed the performances are from Dave Batista, Rupert Grint, Jonathan Groff, and all the cast really, they really do give it their all here. It doesn't change the fact that M. Night Shyamalan still has an absolutely tin ear for dialogue. There are many <laughs> there are <laughs> There are many, and that will come as a shock to absolutely no one. There are many moments in Knock at the Cabin where I found myself thinking, in what universe did you think that line sounded good and anything other than ponderously overwritten and excessively hammy? And the actors, bless them, do their absolute best to sell the dialogue. And in some cases, they do more, I think, more often, but more often than not, I think it does ruin entire scenes. You know, even with the, the heftiest and most serious of line deliveries, it can't stop some of the dialogue from being absolutely ear scraping. <laughs> and uh, there, also, there is also some screen time dedicated to the expanding of the backstory of the couple who parent the daughter. And its incorporation into the narrative is very clunky and ham fisted and doesn't add depth or the emotional investment to the story I think it wants to. And it instead stretches the film to about 95 minutes, which isn't long, but I think. At the 80-minute mark, I was going, yeah, you've kind of stretched this as, about, about as much as you can. But then again, you know, we always think of the Shyamalan, what's the twist going to be gimmick? And whilst, you know, no spoilers, I don't want to talk, you know, talk too much about, talk too much in that vein. I do think that I was impressed, actually, and pleasantly surprised by how he maintains that ambiguity and kept me guessing right up until the very end and even then i still think there's an air of ambiguity in it post having watched it so whilst like i say it does have some you know some past Shyamalan growing pains that don't seem to have been discarded i do actually think it worked somewhat better than i think some of his recent output like glass and old and uh i would say it did just manage to skirt away from mediocrity for me i would give this a b minus i think it was i thought it was solid while it was on if if flawed kind of have this like love hate thing with um Shyamalan where i think his ideas are great like every time i hear like a log line for one of his films i'm like ooh, sounds so good you know like it, it the concept of it or like the the tension of it it always seemed to just fall a little bit flat and I, I and it's it it frustrates me because it's like especially with something like old, I kind of like heard what it was about and I was like that's so interesting what a different kind of idea like again very Twilight Zone, um and it's like a a, a different kind of blockbuster. And I, I do think the strength of this is that he's not necessarily relying in old on this or glass on these really kind of you know 
fantastical conceits and scenarios. I mean, that is here, but what really makes this, I think, work is the quality of the performances and those shifts in power dynamic. And the fact that it's, it is so character-based, you know, we're not, you know, being strung along and, you know, drama artificially injected through, like, the characters aging or, like, a sci-fi injection into the story. It, it really is about, you know, what these, uh, how these relationships change within these strenuous and w- Twilight Zone-esque scenarios these characters put under in this insular space. Which I guess to me is more interesting, like what you're actually going to do with that concept and if you can actually deliver on that concept. So I've actually been quite excited for this one and, and I think I will be seeking it out to give it a watch. Um, I must say that Jonathan Groff, I, I, I think he's a fantastic actor, but he always comes across a bit theatre kid to me sometimes. I mean, obviously that is his background. He's a, he's a musical theatre um guy in spring awakening and um i mean it was in glee and and all of that so there's this kind of theat like theatricality to him that sometimes prevents me from fully believing in his screen performances um i mean it's he did very well in mindhunter but there was again still a little bit like the odd moment where his line delivery would get me is like oh that's quite theater yes a little bit i do i do agree with you on that about him i think his his way of emoting is very kind of pointed and a little bit more heightened than I think the other performers that he's generally cast alongside. And whilst I do think it's becoming more natural the more I see on screen, I would say that he's a little bit guilty of that here. But that doesn't necessarily mean I think he delivers a bad performance. It's just a certain quirk of his acting style that maybe takes me out of the moment every now and then, but I don't think necessarily makes me adverse to him as a screen presence. Okay, on to our, I think this is another another biggie. So, Blue Jean. I've been so excited to talk about this one. So, this one, Big at the Biffers, it won for its screenplay, uh, two of its performances, and I think it won even Best uh, Debut Feature. The Best Debut Feature Award at the Biffers. The British Independent Film Awards, that is, for anyone who doesn't know. It's uh, a British drama set in the late 80s in northeast of England, in Manchester, I believe during the time at which Section 28 legislation was trying to be put through. This was legislation that, whilst homosexuality wasn't outright illegal in the UK anymore, the outright promotion of it was trying to be made illegal, which is just sure, frightening. Yeah, just in- reprehensible and incredibly frightening that that actually happened in fairly recent history, you know, you know only about 12 years before I was, was, only, um... before I was born. Wasn't it only 2003 where it was actually revoked? Yeah, shocking. But, um, I mean, considering some of the, the laws around the LGBTQIA plus community that have been, that are currently trying to put through that restricts their rights, a story like this seems re- more relevant now than ever. So, essentially centres around a woman named Jean, who is a, a closeted lesbian. Uh, she is a PE teacher at her local school, and given the the rising of this legislation, she is consider- considerably wary and afraid of you know, being outed and potentially that impacting on her career in a negative fashion. She's also conflicted because she herself is not, I think, as, as comfortable in her own skin and her sexuality as, say, her partner is. You know, her, her clothing, for example, is much more muted. Her partner you know, wears these very eye-grabbing, 
piercings, you know, spiked leather jacket. She has a lot of tattoos, shaved heads, and a lot more eye-catching in, in her appearance. Whereas Jean is kind of more reserved. And there's a, a student in her, a new student at her school that she sees being bullied and being accosted for the fact that she is also gay. And when that student then starts to hang out in the same kind of areas and bars and clubs that Jean does, she kind of feels as though, you know, that hostile environment and potentially dangerous environment of the school is then sort of encroaching on uh, and bleeding into her social life where she feels safe and accepted. And it's about really her complex relationship with that and how that develops. And from top to bottom, Blue Jeans does so many things right. I mean, this, for starters, Rosie McEwen, who plays Jean, is just she's her performance is extraordinary. So much of the drama is built out built out of her internal journey of what the character is going through, and she completely embodies the various complexities of that unseen war and the different shades of Jean's personality. She has the angular facial features and very striking look of somebody like Tilda Swinton. She very much reminds me of her, but she has a very quietly expressive face as well. She never emotes to an exaggerated degree. Showing great instinct, I think, as a performer in how subtle facial shifts or a, or a single unwavering facial expression can tell us so much about how her character is responding to a situation without re- revealing too much or rendering her performance as anything less than completely genuine. She brings an inquisitiveness, a cold, steely reserve, a, a softly youthful energy, this tremulous anxiety as well, and, and I think a concealed, slowly suffocating pain. Um, it's such a, a richly nuanced and detailed performance, and I think her Biffle win was richly deserved. It's also great to report that the film itself is as immensely detailed as McEwan's performance. There's really well-judged, understated symbolism with the sombre uses of colours like the titular blue to sh- and her clothing to show you know, the main character's muted self-expression. There's this, there's this opening scene that brilliantly lays out the key theme of identity and appearance as a reflection of that. In the opening scene of Jean dyeing her hair blonde, it's funny actually that the the font of the opening credits in the title actually really reminded me of the font used in the titles of Portrait of Lady on Fire and Petite Maman, and I think Blue Jean actually interestingly beautifully evokes that spacious and atmospherically poetic examination of gender and sexuality and identity that permeates a lot of Celine Siama's work and what a great director to invoke the style of. The direction and cinematography are also really effective. The camera work is very intimate and tactile. It helps to envelop you in the relationships on screen. It's also really nicely tethered to Jean's perspective, so we feel strongly connected to her point of view. But the perspective isn't so rigid or tightly linked to her, to the point where we would lose, as an audience, our macro view of the wider narrative and situation. Georgia Oakley, the right director, She's got a great eye for the 1980s Northeast England milieu and atmosphere of the time. You absolutely feel the particular cadence of that place and time. And yet, due to how elegiac the feel and tone of the whole film is, the ideas and examination feel very contemporary and pertinent to right now, which is important considering the timing of the release and what's going on in UK law at the moment. It looks fantastic. The soft grain and noise of the celluloid helps to give it this really, like I said, tactile feel. I mentioned earlier, but also make it picturesque in the sense that several shots have this really exquisite, luminous nostalgia, which I just loved. And I must also commend Oakley on how well written the screenplay is. In amongst the drama, 
between uh, the in the moment on the surface story. You know, you get really nicely timed shots of comedy, but also greatly judged externalizations of the of the subtext, the subtextual significance of the situations to these characters. But they're never, you know, there's never a situation where you feel like too much attention is being called towards towards it. It's built into the fabric of the narrative really, really seamlessly. For example, when Jean's student starts to frequent those same clubs and socialize her within the group, you know, it's complex in how it muddies the student-teacher relationship waters, but also creates inward friction in how Jean sees that ingrained homophobia of the school environment invading the space where she feels comfortable and it makes her feel threatened. You know, just hearing you describe it, it kind of like brings this up for me. Have you ever seen Handsome Devil? No, I haven't. Um, I think it might be on Netflix. Uh, it's Andrew Scott's in it, and he plays a, a teacher. Um, and uh, the, it follows the relationship between two boys at a boarding school. And they kind of realise that they have feelings for each other, but then one night they, they go out to a bar and they actually see Andrew Scott's character at the bar. They found out that he's, he's gay as well. And it's... It, I, I... From quite a simple little film like a little, little indie film quite feel good um but yeah sorry that just brought that up for for me because I, I i can remember kind of enjoying the conflict that that brought up in the teacher character and kind of exploring a world when you have to be hidden and there's nowhere else you can go how those like lines can get muddied yeah i, th I think if you enjoyed that then in that case you would really really love this because i mean that is just at the heart of everything that's going on here and I love it I love dramas where the conflict is so internal and then that is kind of mirrored in the external surroundings of the character I just think that's really intelligent dramatic filmmaking and writing I think we both know that I'm gonna love this regardless yes <laughs> I, I think so it's very it kind of like very me movie I mean also I'm just happy that there's not a lot of queer representation that, that focuses on queer women um, no no yeah, we usually get we've we've had a lot of fantastic films about um about gay men or uh, bisexual men, um uh, you know all of which I enjoy and but the the lesbians and the you know trans women and non-binary people uh, you know we we are like a bit of a subsection and we get even less representation <laughs> than the rest yes. of the community. It's really nice. I mean, one day, you know, I feel like we're getting closer and closer to modern day here. Um, it's not a lesbian period drama, but we're getting we're getting closer. Someday we'll have something set in modern yes. day. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. We're we're progressing. It's um it's a definite step in the right direction. It's um if I have one complaint about Blue Jean, it's that sometimes the thematic scenes and stitches of the screenplay are perhaps more apparent than I perhaps would have liked. You know, there's such nuance and subtlety in other areas of the script that when there's a radio or TV news report of the legislation that's being pushed at the time to ban the promotion and education on homosexuality hanging in the background, or some interactions and dramatic developments between Jean's students and her echoing plot machinations from previous coming-of-age dramas, or one scene between Jean and her girlfriend, and or, or another scene between Jean and her nephew, which stand out in this respect too, like, oh, so, okay, I've seen this before. However, even when particular scenes have an air of it, artificiality about them, the writing is of such nuance and authenticity that the film avoids reaching for any emotionally, you know, cliched fever pitches, even for when it might look like it will for a second. And for this reason, the scenes ends up, work, ends up working and not standing out um, like they would otherwise. 
um, the writing of the characters is of such quality that the way they respond to these situations feels completely natural and doesn't smack of a screenwriter trying to clunkily facilitate a necessary plot development. Everything, really, everything in Blue Jean is pitched at just the right register. It's never exaggerated, but it's, it's never so understated that you know the subtext is murky, and that it can't be pulled out from by an actively viewing audience member. I, I thought this was just terrific, excellent, really from top to bottom, and I think a definite twenty twenty two highlight again. I would I would grade this an A. This was great. Two A's in one episode. That's... Oh, well, well, we've been talking was an A plus. We got an A plus and an A. Oh, A plus. Doing... Okay, A plus and an A. But that's still, you know, that's still pretty high praise. We've got, we've got a we're good one. Well. We've got a good roster this week, and we're not done um, yet. <laughs> and we're not even done, right? So next up is EO, which is about a donkey. Yes. So this is a this is actually based off a, a Robert Bresson film, which I must confess I haven't seen, but I think it's just important to point that out as well the intertextuality a polish drama about like we said a donkey named eo who at the start is uh, used as a circus act but some polish legis- legislation that's brought in sort of takes him away from that he is repossessed as part of you know trying to give the animals a better life and a better future but you know the the pe- people who he ends up being taken to don't exactly treat him with the utmost care he escapes and he embarks on this very kind of offbeat odyssey through the Polish landscape and is kind of I wouldn't say he is used as a as a plot device, but I, I do think he has some character to him. But EO really is a his tra- his you know the donkey traveling through the landscape is really a way of noticing the the varying degrees of you know humanity and the difference in attitude towards animals which i think is a key theme of the film are our attitude towards the natural world animals and also animal cruelty one of the biggest strengths of eo for me is is how it frames the donkey with relation to how we as viewers will then respond to its presentation on screen the cinematography often features shots from eo's point of view and the camera movement is is sometimes very closely shackled to his to the movement of his feet for example but the film also also features very many experiential expressionist views of the environment that have an omniscient quality about the perspective. And what that then does is it creates this wonderful balance of characterising and fleshing out EO as having kind of an interesting, uh, in inverted commas, personality, but also giving us a blank canvas to anthropomorphise anthropomorphize him. You know, we cannot exactly know what the donkey character in the film or the real-life donkey that was being shot on set um, were feeling during shooting, but we can project our own thoughts and ideas about what they may be feeling in a given sequence. It's a really great blank canvas and a really smart method of using cinema to influence an audience into actively generating empathy for an animal on screen in the same way we should be exercising that in real life and expressing that empathy towards the natural world. And it works brilliantly alongside the film's key themes of animal cruelty, you know, the I think it, 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 the formal approach encourages us to actively empathise with the animal and get us to think about how we respond to them in our own experiences and how we maybe should strive to treat animals. It's also significant when you consider the overarching overarching structure of the story, because um, it's very episodic in nature. You know, we we he's with a family who treat him very well and very with a lot of dignity and a lot of 
you know, pampering, <laughs> for example, a lot of hay, a lot of cuddles. But at the same time, he meets people who are incredibly callous and violent towards him. And, you know, but the, but the point is, is that it all, despite the episodic structure, it all flows very nicely. It doesn't feel stitched together. And the filmmaking is so daring and majestic and expressive that it all feels very cohesive and not disjointed at all. From a formal filmmaking perspective, it's incredibly dramatic and grand and stylistically adventurous. You get these pulsating red lights and swirling aerial shots used to signal the feeling of danger. Gorgeous portrait angles of EO situated in various different natural settings, unusual flights of abstract fantasy and overbearingly harsh landscapes and monolithic presentations of these landscapes and also really bestial, contentful human characters. And the score is equally lofty. You get these gargantuan brass horn sections, you know, these, these strange rickety synthesizers, these very luminous and liltingly serene pianos. And even a moment where the score is filled with what sounds like these really ambient, multi-tracked, reverb, reverb-soaked raindrops, it's really whacked out, but it all works so well. And because it's the score is as wildly experimental as the visuals, they do work together really, really well, and it feels very much of a piece. The sound design is also brilliantly used to show the discomfort experienced by the animals. Really abrasively loud, piercing metal clanging and deafening shrieks from the donkeys and horses in some farming environments that he's brought to. Um, mixed so high in the leveled so high in the sound mix and mixed to sound like it's surrounding you that we are really pulled into that fear and pain that the animals are being made to feel which only again helps reinforce that empathy we should be feeling towards them i wouldn't say every single stylistic flourish in eo works it's a particularly disorienting sequence of rotating camera moves in a nighttime forest sequence that bordered on a little bit nauseating. There's also two insert sequences of a robotic dog <laughs> and a person skiing upside down during down a mountain that didn't seemingly have a lot of narrative relevance to the events that immediately preceded them on screen. The ending's also a little bit abrupt, but I, I think I've said this. I mean, I, I've definitely said this before, and if not on the podcast, in my musings to cinema about various friends and family that i would much rather a film you know swung for the fences and maybe missed a little bit and played it safe and it's actually really remarkable how considering you know the level of narrative ground and stylistic risks that eo takes particularly in a very compact just over 80 minute runtime how much of it how much of it lands and how much of it works you know so the complaints I mentioned just then are very minor, really, in the grand scheme of things. I was very, I was very impressed by this film as well. I, I think we're on, I think we're on for another A. This was a great one. I would, I would recommend this highly as well, especially for animal lovers. Nice, uh, the cute donkey film uh, is what I'm going <laughs> to start calling it. And uh, yeah, animal lovers everywhere. This is the one for you. <laughs> it, it, it's somewhat. I mean, I say for animal lovers, it's it's somewhat just just distressing in places, but I do think that its message about how we should be treating animals is something that 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 will resonate with them, and also I think every audience member very very strongly. Talking of animal lovers, segue <laughs> there. Do you see? Do you see how good that, was that very, was? Very smooth. Very, very smooth. smooth. I so pl- smooth. I applaud you there. <laughs> Thank you. It was really smooth until I pointed it out. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So Puss in Boots, obviously the um, character from the Shrek films, came in in the second Shrek film, became an instant fan favorite. Uh, fa- an instant fan favorite um, voiced by antonio banderas uh, legend legend himself and i i can't every time i just hear his name i just think of princess bride uh it's <laughs> I can't i can't not anymore it's like you killed my father prepare to die and neo montoya you killed my yes. father prepare to die <sighs> classic anyway enough about him puss in boots what's that about so Puss has, you know, been rip-roaring his way through heists and battles and, you know, adventurous escapades and has found himself on the last of his nine lives. You know, if he is, you know, killed in another in another adventure, he will not be able to come back from it. He's been a bit careless and he's kind of almost embraced, not embracing, so he's uh, he's feeling his his mortality and the impending end of his swashbuckling career um very potently and he's he sees an opportunity with this kind of mystical fantastical legend of a of a star that grants you a wish that he can potentially garner those lives back and gain a new lease on life and that kind of brings him into you know another swashbuckling adventure with you know villains hot on his tail taken from you know the the fairy tale book you know you get goldilocks and the bears and um his name's jack he kind of puts his thumb in a in a pie i, I forget his name but there are some terrific uh feet features name by is jack him. and he puts his thumb in a pie what the, what the hell is that <laughs> i can't remember he's a he's a he's he is a fairy tale character i can't remember his name um oh that's gonna that's gonna bug me you know now. What? What is it? jack um, horner jack horner Listeners, if you have heard of Jack Horner, please let us know because I've never heard of that. That's a new one on me. I am, I am fact checking it. Yeah, little Jack Horner nursery rhyme. I am puts his puts his thumb in a pie. Uh, what plum pie? Big that. Oh, you learned something. Word for it. Sorry, carry on. Take Google's word for it as well. But um, yes, so you get some kind of very fun cameos from past fairy tale characters also from the the shrek universe as well and it's it's just great fun it's there's a really terrific visual combination of the computer animated dreamworks style of previous shrek films but also a crisp cell shaded texture that you get from something like spider-man into the spider-verse it helps to keep the visual style varied and the contrast makes it you know very visually scintillating and gives the action sequences this lively comic book sensibility which it actually enhances the clear Japanese anime influences of many of the fight scenes as well. One of the things that was actually gr- a great pleasure for me in uh, in watching this was how silly literate Puss in Boots Last Wish actually is. Its sense of film grammar is very entertaining. There's a, a Mexican standoff sequence that clearly pays homage to the climactic firefight in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. There's, I mean, probably my favourite of these sequences, there's this exhaustion-induced fever dream montage laden in visual dissolves that's set to the end by the doors which is very clearly a hark back to the alcohol-fueled delirium sequence that martin sheen has in apocalypse now at the very start of that film <laughs> there's some sh- i know this it's crazy there's there's some shot for shot recreations of fight scenes from famous anime like attack on titan and neon genesis evangelion 
I mean, it's not exactly earning Puss in Boots points for originality, but it certainly gave it character for me and a, and a sprightly kind of witty, winking sense of humour. And I kind of enjoyed how self-referential it was in places. Puss in Boots doing Attack on Titan is not something I would have ever put together. But if it works, it works. I think it does. I think it does work. I think the action sequences also greatly benefit from a certain degree of restraint in the camera work. You know, rather than cutting cutting at a blistering pace, the camera will often fluidly track across set pieces as characters move around the environment and are fighting each other, giving the excellent fight choreograph- choreography some breathing room and a clear and gives us a clear handle on the geography of the altercations and doesn't make it makes the balletic nature of the movement and the attacks more gratifying and lends a visual clarity and, and coherence to the action there. In its latter half, The Last Wish also features an extended stay in a magical realm, and it contains a plot device, with no spoilers, but it contains a plot device that allows the the geography of the world to change on a dime based on different characters' actions. And it's a really intelligent device because it allows the world to shift and contort and break apart in a way that really that has narrative reasoning, but also facilitates some really creative choreography in the chase and fight sequences that make ample use of the changes in the landscape which I thought was a very wise decision and, and very well done. It's really well paced. There's a, graceful moment, there's a graceful momentum to the direction that embraces the energetic bounce of the characters, but doesn't blitz, doesn't blitz through with such briskness that we sustain narrative whiplash. The characters, I do have to say, are somewhat lacking in depth, as I think is you know, the overarching story. It's not the most engaging, I think, I've seen from an animated romp in, in recent times. The characters are also built out of fairly standard hero and villain archetypes. Uh, you know, the partners that betrayed one another and come to trust each other again, the petulant villain who was ridiculed when young and has fostered the hatred for the world moving into adulthood. It's like, oh, okay, we've, we've seen this. Uh, there's, there's actually even a sequence that almost warranted a little bit of an eye roll. There's a, the messaging and wider themes, are they're pretty t- tried and tested in children-focused animations and they sometimes communicated these broad strokes ideas with fantastical locations that are named to represent that idea in a way that is a little heavy handed. There's a there's a point where they have to get through a roadblock, which is blocked by colossal sentient roses that are alive and they must be passed by stopping to smell them, stopping to smell oh, the roses. That's, yeah, that's actually quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny. I can see the humour, but it was like, oh, OK. But um. Despite this, um, and some some of the obvious and arguably slightly stale plot leanings, the characters are so braggadocious and witty and brimming with infre- infectious personality that it's hard not to become invested in them and their journey. And the dialogue is very sharp, and the voice performances by Antonio Banderas, you know, they're, they're so expressive and so filled with so filled with kinetic energy that. It makes the later plot developments work and feel heartwarming, even if you can see them kind of coming from a mile off. It it did still win me over by the end. There's also the character of Perito, Perito, a dog that Puss in Boots and Kitty Soft Paws meet, is, you know, he's just the he will he he will win the hearts of you know an entire generation. He um he's a great character. And the the voice cast, you know, Ray Winston, Olivia Common, Florence Pugh, Salma Hayek, um, 
Antonio Mendes as well. I just is is stellar across the board. Yes, I had um whilst I wouldn't say it's reinventing the animation wheel, um, it's a really solid addition to the Shrek to the Shrek franchise, and I had terrific fun with it. I would give this a, a solid B plus. When are we gonna get Shrek five? <laughs> well, it's actually it's interesting you say that because there was a really in the screening I was in with um, the audience I was in, there was um, you could tell that there was a lot of love and excitement based around the fact that you know Shrek really does still hold a lot of a big place in the hearts of I think our generation. People have a lot of still reverence and nostalgia and joy for it as a franchise, and a lot of good memories attached to it. And there's without spoilers, there's a seat. The final shot of the film so perfectly alludes to maybe a potential you know, expansion of the franchise in the future that just made us all gasp with glee it was a really lovely moment. The Shrek cinematic universe. It's like Shrek going to become it, like it is, it is. now and just show up at the end of... Yeah. The Far, Far Away Avengers assemble. Ow. I didn't know I needed that, but now now I'm hearing it. I think I do. Um. Right, so that's everything for this week. Thank you, as always, Billy, for giving us your thoughts and opinions. You've been as uh, wonderful as ever. As have you, my wonderful esteemed co-host. Nice, that is my job, yes. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what have we got coming up next week? So next week, I think we're going to tackle some recent... I think it's fairly quiet for new releases, so I think what we're going to do next week is we're going to tackle some more streaming releases so we're gonna in our in a first on the test screening podcast we are going to be uh looking at season one of the bear disney plus um series that's achieved a, achieved a lot of critical acclaim so i'm very excited to talk about that I'm enjoying also it some, very much yes i know you're watching it now i've finished but I'm, I'm very interested to see what you think when you get to the end also some uh eiffel Starring, you know, historical biopic with Emma Mackey from Sex Education, which I don't ever think got a theatrical release in the UK, but is now on Sky. Also, a, a really terrific Indian-based wildlife documentary, um, All That Breathes, which is also on Sky, and two Disney Plus documentaries: The Territory, funded funded and produced by Darren Aronofsky's production company Protozoa, The Territory, that one's name is, and Fire at Love, which is nominated for the academy award for best documentary feature so a very interesting slightly different lineup next week i look forward to it so um as always um find us on instagram give us a like there's a bit of extra content on there and you'll be able to see what billy's watching throughout the week um and with that i bid you adieu bye everybody bye thank you for listening